Hello again, everyone. This is Marty Duran with Great Commission Collective. I'm joined by Dave Harvey, president of GCC, and John Kelly, senior pastor of Chicago West Bible Church, in another crucial conversation that John is actually going to be hosting this time. And without further ado, I'm going to kick it right over to him. John? Yeah. Well, good to see you, Marty, and good to see you, Dave. And uh, the goal for today is just to continue our conversations. And uh, thank you for our first one. Um, in which, you know, we heard a lot about kind of fresh when everything was happening in our country a few weeks ago for myself, Darren Greenfield and uh, Stephen Love. If you have not listened to that, um, take a chance, you know, take a listen sometime when you can. But this is kind of a, a part two to that. And um, obviously we were able to share our voices first. So thank you about that. Um, this is not a debate. This is not a us, them, this is a, the body of Christ coming together. And so this is a mutual conversation. If we're going to um, work together, walk together, um, get to a place of healing together that's different from what the world is, then we have to be able to dialogue. And uh, th this issue of um, race in America, um, justice, uh, this is not a one-sided conversation. This isn't you know, uh, Black folks just telling everybody what they need to know and they need to hear. Um, this is us dialoguing together. And so that's what we want to do this morning, because I think there's two demographics out there. There are those who um, may be white and are thinking, or not of color, and are thinking through some of these issues and are trying to process and and um, and maybe some of your experiences and, and how your processing could help them along the way as um, brothers and sisters think about some of these things. Um, two, there's people of color who um, are trying to process too and, and trying to understand. And sometimes, you know, we don't understand one another because um, so, so much of our worldview can be shaped by our culture, our upbringing, our own context. And so understanding that someone else's world may not be the same as mine is a good place to start and in dialoguing through that. And so that's what I want to do this morning in this issue and kind of see how um, up until where you are today, uh, how has some of these issues fleshed out? Have you processed that? And just where you are. And I want to say up front that this is a safe place. There's no condemnation here. Um, no matter what's said here, we're still going to be in glory together for all of eternity. Hallelujah for that. Right. Um, but if you don't feel safe to say certain things or process certain things, then we shouldn't even talk. Mm. And that goes for everyone in the room. You have to be able to feel safe without judging and stoning someone for honestly sharing how they're processing. So I have a couple questions that I jotted down and um, I just want to kind of work through them and just kind of get your feedback and hope to encourage other people. And uh, one of the things that I often talk about when it comes to the issue of um, race and justice is um, the first place you often say you should start is your dinner table in your circle of friends, right? Everybody wants unity, but it's like, hey, but if all your friends vote like you, think like you, talk like you, you know, then you should start there. And so for you two guys, um, it, we could start with Dave, you first, and then go to Marty. Um, how old were you when you first had your first close friendship with a person of color? And, and, and did you ever have, I don't want to assume, did you yeah. ever have um, a close friendship? Because some people had friendships, but it wasn't really a close friendship. So how old were you when you had your first close friendship with a person yeah. of color? Um, well, I want to answer that. But first, John, I want to say thank you for, thank you for this idea. And, and thank you for your desire to just hear from us and, and kind of kick this around with us. This is, um, this is like really humbling for us. 
and uh, and and we're, we've prayed that God would use it to serve people. But you know, this idea you had, um, I'm just very grateful for for your leadership here. Um, so thank you. So if we're if we're talking about general friendships, I, I think I had them beginning at around eight or nine years of age because that's when I began playing organized sports. And uh, I, I played baseball and football uh, through high school. And so it tended to, to throw together to, or to throw us together, me together with the same group of white kids and the same group of African-American kids. And so there were, there were acquaintances that developed into friendships around that. But I don't think it was anything deep or substantive. I think if we're talking about close friendship, I think that would not have come until I was converted at the age of 1920. And, and it took me being converted quite honestly, to, to confront some of the mistrust and racism that I had towards African Americans. And uh, I can give you, let me just give you a little context for that so that it's, it's I'm not just dropping that. So I, I was raised in Pittsburgh and attended high school in the 70s. And so this is very early on in the desegregation era. And my high school was joined together, uh, basically came together, brought together, I should say, two economic and racial communities. You had a white middle class, and then you had a, a financially impoverished black community. And uh, in the early 70s and, and, and mid 70s, and, and the results were, were explosive. <laughs> and, and so everybody's circle of friendships seemed to form around color and uh and, and some of my first memories of going to football games was was the race riots that would take place they were they were in the cafeteria they would break out in the hallways they were after school they were at football uh and and and, and there were times where the racial tensions were so palpable that you, you you felt it as soon as you you got off the school bus in the morning, and so uh, yeah, I, I I hate having to admit this. I, I mean, it's good to have to admit this, and it's humbling to have to admit this, and it's hard to have to admit this. But I I think that experience shaped an idea that I had of African Americans as um, emotionally unpredictable or or violent, and uh, and so that that put a a wedge in my heart, and uh, alongside of that came another experience where where my my brother, you know, was uh, was beaten up one night by a, a group of african-american teenagers he's badly beaten he had to be taken to the hospital and and i just remember standing at my my brother's bed and my parents are whispering in the other room whether they can even move him to the hospital and 
And, and so I had all these experiences and I carried this baggage into conversion, this, this fear, this deep suspicion of African-Americans. I didn't understand anything of the historical and social factors. All I knew was that I had this visceral thing going on. And, uh, and, and John, the gospel, you know, the gospel confronted that. And, and, and by, by the Spirit of God began this dismantling process of, uh, of helping me to see what was in my heart and, and how wrong, how wicked it was. And that opened the door then for uh, deeper friendships with an, an array of African Americans. So a long answer to a, to a great question. Thank you. No, but that's helpful because, again, um, you know, culture and context can help shape um, and build a framework for how you perceive people. And, and that's different based upon the, the era you lived in and is based upon, you know, what, you know, what city you lived in or what town you lived in, what experiences you had. And so, no, this is, this is all helpful. How about you, Marty? What when was your kind of first real? What was uh, when you? How old were you when you had your first real close friendship with the person of color? Uh, I was significantly older than Dave. Um, I was raised on the south side of Atlanta, Georgia, in in a, an unofficially segregated county. Um, there was little racial violence that I remember, primarily because there weren't enough black people to be violent against. Uh, it was a, a probably 95% white county. Uh, there were, I don't think I had a, uh, an African-American person in my classes until maybe I was in high school. Uh, never had an African-American teacher uh, or professor in college that I, that I remember at all. Not even like from don't want to don't want to put your age out there, Marty. But can you give us like the era? Is this like eighty? <laughs> is this like ninety? Seventeen eighty-five. Um, it was. Uh, <laughs> I would have been in middle school and high school in the mid to late seventies, uh, and I graduated in eighty-one. So there may have been four to five uh, African Americans in my graduating class of about three hundred, something like that. I didn't know any of them other than by name. Um, that to my memory, we never had uh, an African-American family over for dinner. Uh, we ne and part of it was there were no African-Americans at our church. Um, we went to a solidly white church. I remember the first regularly attending African-American was a football player, friend of a, a church member who played football at a neighboring high school, uh, began to come. And everybody liked him, but he wasn't going to go home and have lunch with anybody. You know how that goes. So that was kind of the dynamic that I grew up in. Um, I would say that, uh, and I'm, I'm really doing some hard thinking here because I don't want to leave anybody out or overlook anyone that might watch this video. But I think the first time that I ever went to lunch with an African-American person on purpose, just me and that person was probably 12 or 13 years ago. So I would have been in my early to mid forties before I ever sat down and had lunch. This was a man who was attending our church. His family was attending our church and he and I went to lunch together and became great friends, still friends with he and his family. But as far as a close friend, it would have been with probably within about the last 10 years that I had a close friend that was African-American or any person of, of any non-white background. So uh, Latino or Asian, 
uh, of any grouping. Uh, there's, I, I just led a very isolated white life. Uh, and it's, it's only been within the last decade and a half that, um, that racial issues have even begun to pop up on my screen in any way at all, really. No, this is helpful because I think one of the things is, is there's sometimes there's just an assumption too, that like, um, Hey, that, that like, like it's just whites that don't interact with people of color, but I could say the same thing for blacks. Um, probably some of my Latino brothers and sisters would say the same thing. Maybe Asian It's just, we, we naturally gravitate towards our context, our family and their closest friends and our neighbors. And, and so you kind of, unless you're in a certain situations, I don't even, maybe college or certain work environments, you kind of got to work a little harder unless you live in a neighborhood where it's like everybody on your street is diverse and you go to a church where everybody like, and that's rare in the country. And so I think sometimes we can penalize people because like, well, you didn't have any, you know, black friends or you didn't have any white friends or you didn't have, like, I know most, I know a lot of black folks who majority of their friends is black. And I wouldn't say that they're prejudiced or racist or this and that, but but these can be, as we talked about, like cultural blind spots, right? That you don't realize, like, wow, why isn't that? So looking at that, right, there's, so you, you talked about kind of upbringing. One thing that has come up over and over, and it's kind of been one of my frustrations, but you hear it a lot, is that, man, the church should be leading. The church should be leading. The church, like, yeah, regardless of what's going on in the world, the church should be on the front end guiding the conversation and if, if the secular world drifts we still move forward right so knowing that um were, was the topic of um, racial reconciliation or um systemic injustice was that subjects of sermons in churches or conferences that you attended growing up as you think about the church settings that you were in and the, the theological conferences that you were in were these things that was kind of normal or kind of regular rhythms from now and then or or that wasn't the case uh, not for me no um, it, it, it wasn't until I was converted um, uh, in ministry and began attending uh, cuts. I think I was mentioning this to you. Uh, yeah, last... I, know, I know cuts. Yeah. So Center for Urban you Theology. Actually attend, you actually attended cuts. I attended cuts for like two oh, and a half wow. years. Wow. And, 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 and then we, we as a church started preaching on a little bit. Uh, and that, that experience at, at cuts was, was extremely formative for me, uh, because I was getting exposure to, uh, Oh, Sorry, real quick, I don't want to cut you off, but for those who don't know, CUTS is uh, short for uh, the Center for Urban and Theological Studies. It's in Philadelphia, yeah. and it's a predominantly um, urban minority context, but it's very diverse, and it's very um, urban, as you can say. It's kind of, yeah, it's a good place, a solid place. So just so you know, if you're like, what's CUTS? Dave said he went to CUTS. That's what yeah. CUTS. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm taking like I was converted, but hadn't worked through all this stuff, and 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 so I'm taking into the classroom, you know, in the inner city, all of this stuff that I have, all this uncertainty and this baggage, where then I'm sitting under the teaching of of Carl Ellis and and Manny Ortiz and and Harvey Kahn and just other 
you know, giants in the world of, of missiology and sitting there, I remember sitting, listening to John Perkins speak and, and, and reading about like black liberation theology of James Cone and, and uh, conservatives like Shelby Steele and Thomas Sowell and, 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 and God kind of using that to, to, to slowly excavate my soul and, and, and hack away at the at the roots of, of of racism and uh and then try to you know take our church in in that direction as well but it really wasn't until i went to the center for urban theological study that i began hearing these themes and it wasn't until then that i began to realize lord there are major portions of scripture that i have looked at com- incorrectly or i've just overlooked completely uh, because, you know, I, I haven't been taught or, or my own, you know, just being in the majority culture, it doesn't take me to those passages. Those passages don't, don't pop for me. And it was there that I, I was offered an, another set of glasses, and, and uh, it became instrumental, I think, in, in my development. How about you, Marty, when you think about, and I want to circle back to the theological educational piece, but as far as churches, and I, and I kind of want to expand it too, Dave, if you want to circle back, not just the church that you were in, um, maybe saying, man, I never really heard any sermons on um, systemic injustice or you know, racial reconciliation or something like that, but I want to expand it to churches that you were associated with too, like if you were in a denomination or a network, not just your own churches. And so, Marty, you want to kind of speak to the church environment and if it, you know if you've heard some of that, and I'm pretty interested to hear what you have to say too, because the South is a completely different dynamic as yeah. well. And and even when you were in middle school, you you pretty much weren't that many years removed from Dr. King's assassination right. down in, right. you know, so, so that's a very unique perspective as well. So you want to kind of speak to the, the, the church settings? Yeah, we were definitely uh, segregated churches uh, where I grew up and nobody in churches that we attended would have quoted Martin Luther King Jr. for anything uh, unless they were going to try to prove that he was a communist. Um, th- there were no, no African-American theologians quoted uh, no, uh, we did have periodically, uh, at a, like a local Bible conference, like an associate. So we were Southern Baptist and it was, so we'd have the local associational Bible conference once a year evangelism conference, something like that. And usually they would bring in, uh, an AL Patterson or an EK Bailey, somebody like that to preach like the climactic sermon. But unfortunately, and I really do think this is true. I don't looking back at it. I think this is true. I think it was more. Uh, he was the person to come in to rouse us all up and excite us by with good preaching. So it was never a sermon on justice. It wasn't about issues that would have affected the black community. It was the purpose of the sermon was to get all of the white pastors excited about going back to their church and being evangelistic. That's really how, I, looking back on it, that's how I feel about what we were experiencing. Good sermons, good men, good theology, uh, but nothing like what uh, what we're talking about today. Um, when I pastored, uh, I never preached for years and years, maybe as many as 20 years. Um, I didn't preach on issues of justice. Um, the, the minor prophets were there, but they weren't relevant in the way 
that I understand them to be relevant today. Um, it, we would, I remember uh, maybe 15 years ago, we had a biracial, uh, at that time he really was a boy. He was probably in, in elementary school, was attending our church with his mom. His mom was white. Uh, his dad, I believe, may have been French, but he was a black Frenchman, so he was biracial. But his grandmother lived in Chicago, and so she was down one time, and she loved to come to our church and had a great time when she came. And she asked me, <laughs> this was in February one year, she said, well, what are y'all doing for Black History Month? And I said, well, I don't think we're doing anything for Black History Month. I knew we weren't. I was the lead pastor. Um, I said, I don't think we're doing anything for Black. Well, you need to, I want and she called her grandson's name. I want him to know about black history. And I'm sure I said something stupid like, well, that's why schools exist. Or so, I'm sure I said something very offensive, not intending to be, just trying to get out of a really awkward situation. But that's about how I thought about it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't about church. Those issues didn't have to do with what we were doing in church, which was getting people saved and sending missionaries to the field and hopefully planting some churches along the way and those kinds of things. They were unrelated issues, and they seemed to be in all of the churches that I was familiar with growing up. Wow, I mean that, that's pretty that's, that's that's interesting. One of the things I think comes up, and I hope listeners are, are listening to this, is that um, you you kind of allude to it, right, Dave? You said, "Man, things kind of began to shift when I went to the Center for Urban Theological Studies, right?" And then even you, Marty, here's this um, white woman who's a mom, but her son is mixed, right? And so I think one of the things that's coming up here um, that maybe some listeners can take away is the importance of proximity, right? The, the importance of, of engaging uh, settings and context that may not be exactly the way I think, but actually can enrich me, right? Because now as you, you talk about there's whole sections of scripture that you never even thought to preach through, um, preach through, or even think through, but that was coming out of engagement with different settings. I wanna, I wanna circle back real quick, Dave, because you, you, you kind of, uh, one of my questions was about theological training, and you kind of jumped ahead and put it in with the church. But outside of the Center for Urban Theological Studies, I don't know where, you know, if you got an MDiv, I don't even know your resume and where you went to seminary. If you even went to seminary, I don't want to make an assumption. Same thing for you, Marty. Um, what was kind of the cultural context of exposure to um, uh, Black theologians, Black scholars, um, writings, um, and especially um, exposure to uh, uh, Black scholars and writers that wouldn't be considered liberal? but that would be considered conservative orthodox. Were, were, were you exposed to maybe like textbooks? Um, did you have any professors who were of color? Um, what, was the, what was the context of your theological formation in some of the seminaries or colleges or universities you went through along these lines? Can you remember or recall anything? Yeah, I, I think for, for me, it, it pretty much started when I went to cuts. So prior to that, I was, I had been converted for about three or four years, but I was converted into like a white campus group um, that had, I can remember having one African American in there and, uh, and relating to him, but that he was an anomaly in the group because um, it was, it was Lily white and then uh, church, same thing, uh, predominantly white. And so they, and there was no recommendation of books written by 
black thinkers or or theologians or anything like that. Uh, and so I, for, for me, it really did only begin. I was raised in a a uh, pre Presbyterian church. Uh, I was an unbeliever, but Presbyterian church, but it was a liberal Presbyterian church. Uh, so same kind of thing. There just wasn't that that wasn't a vein of of, of thinking or discussion or or uh, dialogue, reading, anything like that. And, uh, and, and so for me, it, didn't, it really didn't begin until I was at the Center for Urban Theological Study and you know, something just ignited. Um, I, I think that, I'll make, let me just make one other comment, John, because you, you were just talking about how, you know, how, how we can be enriched by uh, understanding and, 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 and reading kind of cross-culturally and cross-racially and, and, uh, and, and, and then relating as well. And, and you know, as, as a, like a white Christian and then being a white Christian before I went to the Center for Urban Theological Study, um, I, I would just say the, a majority culture, a, a white Christian does not see their need for diversity. Um, it, it's not necessarily that, that maybe, you know, they're pulsing with bigotry. It's, it's, it's not a felt need that a white Christian experiences. It's something that scripture, you know, kind of takes us into and scripture begins to unlock for us. But I, I think that the, that's the problem of the majority culture in any country, you know, the, the laws, the culture, the, the policies tend to be shaped by the majority and shaped towards the majority and it favors the majority. And so it, it, it kind of embeds these inequalities into the system that, that only minorities experience. And, and, and when the minority tries to point it out to the majority, it's like, uh, uh, I, I have a friend who, whose dad was in Coventry in uh, in the UK when it was being bombed, and so he's had these long conversations with his dad about what it was like to be in Coventry as the Nazis were bombing Coventry, and and he would listen to how his dad would talk about the difficulties and the challenges. But to him, it was just a story. You know, it was it, it was hard for his dad to convey the true suffering, and I, I think that's like a a picture of of minorities seeking to explain their experiences to a majority culture. It, it's just hard to convey the depth of suffering to another who has never experienced it. And then the other doesn't have any motivation to even go after it. And apart from the gospel, where will the motivation come from? That's good that you said. I just, um, I just wrapped up literally this past week, seven years of theological education. I'm on the shelf for a while. I can't do no schooling. I'm going to turn around and give this degree from Wheaton Wright to my wife. Um, but I just took a class with Dr. Vincent Bacon, um, African-American scholar at Wheaton over to the, the Department of Ethics and all that. This is, I did seven years of education. This is my first class I took with a person of color. I've never taken a class in two different institutes, very respected conservatives. I've never taken a class with a person of color. And this class was called Majority uh, World Theologies. And it was looking at how we can benefit from learning um, uh, about 
how people process the theology of scripture outside of Western culture. Man, even as a black man in America, I walked away feeling like I have so many blind spots, just things that were raised. I just, I just never thought of. And so I just want to say to kind of what you say, Dave, it's true that we gravitate towards our settings again, and this keeps coming up, but there's a richness that we will um, taste. And there's some aspects to our preaching and our ministry that could be enhanced if we consider caps and discussions that come from outside of our settings, because we tend to try to adjust the needs within our settings when we go to scripture and there's things we just never think of. So that's, that's really good. How about you, um, Marty? How about you? Like when you think about your theological formation, professors, textbooks, exposure, what was that like for you as a white uh, man in America? Uh, brother, it was all the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man. It was uh, white as far as you could see. Um, to to my knowledge, I was never assigned a textbook uh, by an African American or Asian uh, or a Latino person. We certainly never made specific study of any kind of African American theology. Um, that would go now. My theological education is a lot different than y'all's. Uh, I went to a very small Bible college outside of Atlanta for a couple of years. And then I, I squeezed the last two years of my bachelor's degree into about 27 years. Um, and so a lot of it was done online by that point. And so some of the teachers, I didn't even know who they were. But there were never any, uh, there was never any intent to explore African-American perspectives on theology. Um, that didn't happen for me until I had already graduated from Bible college, graduated with a business degree and a master's, um, and I began to read some uh, African-American theology on my own, so within the last 10 or 12 years. Um, it's, uh, I, I've been late to this particular game. Um, I, I was not brought up. In fact, I have, I've actually been doing some research about attending classes at Fisk University here in Nashville, uh, specifically history classes, specifically uh, African-American history classes, just so I can begin to get more exposure to those things. When Dave says blind spot, he, it really, that's really the right term, but I think it's, it's just not comprehensive enough for what a lot of white people experience. It's, it's like they're not even aware there's something out there they're supposed to be seeing. It's, it's, a, it's almost a total blindness, not just a spot, um, into which racial issues fits somehow. So you mentioned church and theology. The, the only time I can remember any specific emphasis on African-American, anything in church other than a guest a pastor who might have been an African-American, was when Dylan Roof shot nine black church members in, Charlotte, uh, in Charleston a few years ago, and the next Sunday in our church uh, here in Nashville, we did a memorial time with a mosaic of their pictures on the screen and talked about how they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And an African-American church member came up to me afterwards and said, I never thought I would ever hear a white pastor say those things. And he was 50 years old. So it's, it's just, it's, a, it's been a big lack for us. No, and I think that's powerful, but it's bold. I mean, we've had, um, I've had people emailing us that doesn't even live in our state because, you know, COVID, everything's online, who are considering uh, minority people who are considering 
they don't even want to tithe to that church anymore. They want to tithe to a different church. They don't want to live. They don't want to attend that church anymore because something was was not addressed. And I do think what you talk about of even something to that degree, that's very bold but good. And I know it's hard for pastors of any ethnicity to do that because it cuts against the grain of the comfortability of people. And I've never heard something to that even extent to actually have like a memorial. Because sometimes what happens, you get acknowledgement and a prayer, but that's jumping in into the, the deep end. How, how, real quickly, how did the rest of the church respond to that? Was that embraced by the whole church? Yes, it was. It was uh, It was very much so. Um, we were two campuses at the time, and the other pastor did the same thing at the other campus. I did it at one. Uh, and it was very well received. And, and I think it really began to open, further open some minds and further open some hearts. Um, but there's still a huge disconnect in, in most white folks' lives. Uh, most white folks don't, con- I mean, nobody's cheering Dylan Roof in Southern Baptist churches. You know, it's not like that. It's just there's a real disconnect in what our brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in culture go through in these issues. And we don't, uh, many times we don't have a, a well enough formed theology of justice to know how to think about them or respond to them. As we get kind of closer to our time, I want to keep an eye on time and respect that. Just as we kind of start to wrap up and go downhill, I have um, uh, two more questions. One is obviously very controversial, um, but I would love to kind of t- talk and hear your feedback to hear when are now as compared to where you were in the past. So it sounds like your processing is different. Um, one of the things that has come up a lot in the conversation of race and justice, um, and you can't even really even get down a field if it doesn't come up somehow, is this, t- is this uh, phrase, um, white privilege. And that's loaded for a lot of different people for some, you know, and we could, we don't even have the time to dis- discuss that whole books have been written about that. But as, um, as you think about that, Dave, as a white man and your experiences and you hear what's going on in the country now, Marty, as you think about that, and, and, and even both of you, Dave, it sounds like even in Pittsburgh, you've seen some very intense things at some of the same levels we see today, like there's riots and there's frustration and there's protesting and it's still going on today. And same thing, Marty, what, what does that mean to you? What is the term, what do you hear um, when you hear the term white privilege? Yeah, so the first time I ever heard it, I was probably more confused than anything. Um, I, I wouldn't have had a framework for it at all, but it would have, uh, it would have said to me, I had things I didn't have to earn or things I didn't have to work for, or that my dad, didn't have to work 30 years at the Ford plant to provide for us, you know, that we just had some kind of a, uh, we were upper class in some way. Uh, but as I begin to think about and understand how it, how it's used, when it's used properly, then I get it. And um, I, I accept that it is a thing. Uh, I, I'm not the one qualified to speak to the breadth of it. But I know um, in talking to my black men friends, especially about our, the differences in our interactions with, with police, and I'll just use this one set of examples, um, that all of mine personally have always been positive. And most of the black friends that I have, especially men who've had uh, law enforcement encounters have either been overtly negative or really, really anxiety ridden. Um, I've never had anything like that. And so as I began to watch these situations, um, like George Floyd, but way back from that, uh, way earlier, I began to watch and listen to my, to my friends. And I began to realize that there were certain benefits that I had 
by being a white man in a majority white culture that has been predominantly white run for hundreds of years, that there are certain benefits conveyed upon me just because I was born with lighter colored skin than somebody else was. And so I get it now. Uh, I understand that, that white privilege is a thing. I think it's just really hard for most white folks to grasp what it really means. I wish there was a different phrase that that wasn't so scary or so off-putting initially, but it's the one we have to work with, so we just have to learn to work with it. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I think if, if any white person that's willing to sit down with a black person and have a conversation about what it really means and explore some of the ways that that I'm advantaged when I go to get a loan, for instance, um, then I, I think it becomes a little bit clearer and a little bit easier to get our minds around. Dave? Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, and I think d descriptive of of how I think about it. In other words, I think it 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 matters on how the word is being used. So I, I think it, or, or the phrase, I, I think that it, it, it functions well as a phrase to, to the degree that it's, it's a descriptor that strives to define legitimate advantages that the white culture has. Um, last time we, we talked, uh, I, I mentioned a, a story um, I have an, I have an adopted African American son. His name's his name is Asa. He's he's about 26. A couple years ago, we went shopping uh, and found a car that I thought was just a great car, was a great option. And when I pitched it to him, Asa immediately just killed the idea. And he said, "Dad, a black man can't drive a car like that. That car just just screams. Hey, here's a black guy." Um, and and one of the first thoughts I had was, you know, I I, I never in my life have have bought a car where I had to consider the, 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 the color of the car because of the color of my skin. And uh, I, I think that's a good example of how this works. I, you know, I have a privilege uh, there as being born as a white man in the United States. So to the extent that it, it talks about that, I think it's really helpful. And, and to the extent that it, 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 it works to sensitize white people to understand that their color affords them prerogatives and options that are not available or are not as readily available to, to minorities and, and African-Americans in particular. Um, so to the extent it, 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 it educates, I think it works well there and, and calls white people to you know, strive for equality of opportunity and, and uh, you know, it functions effectively. I think, I think where it breaks down for me is, is when it's used or if it's used to incite shame or to uh, silence legitimate dialogue over race or silence disagreement that may take place. Um, in other words, uh, you can't have that opinion or that opinion is simply an expression of your, your white privilege and coming out of the gate with that. Um, you know, it's, it's just really, I don't see us making much headway uh, and it's really difficult to discuss perspectives with another person who assumes a moral authority 
and the moral imperative of their position. Uh, conversation can't go anywhere. And so, you know, we want to have open and honest conversations where the disagreements that we may have are considered, uh, but the, the presence of those disagreements does not immediately label uh, you or me in any particular way. We, we work through that. So I think it, I, I guess, John, what I'm saying is, is when I hear it, I think, oh, that's helpful. Oh, that's helpful. Oh, that's helpful. Oh, that's dangerous. Um, so it, it kind of hits me in, in all those different ways. Yeah, I think, I think um, one of the things that's challenging for the church is that we often, sometimes we have to, and then sometimes we don't have to, but we can, we can adopt definitions and terminologies given to us by the world. And then we can, in our flesh, weaponize them. And so you got um, terms like conservative, liberal, um, white privilege, left, right, you know, and you can weaponize and silence that. And, um, and I think that's, that's a good, that's a conversation of in itself is how we can weaponize terms that really wound and hurt conversation when we're trying to make some headway on some truth. That's a whole nother episode in of itself. As we close, guys, I just want to give, um, I just want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that came to your mind as you were thinking that maybe I didn't ask, but as you were just thinking, it's like, man, something you want to just close any closing thought that came to mind that you want to speak to real briefly, or do you feel like you touched on everything? Well, I mean, what I, what I wanted to say is one of the reasons I feel so honored that you invited us to have this conversation is because you know, you, you're you're striving to to do these things, and I I do believe that as a white person, there's a onus of responsibility that I have in pursuit that isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily need to be reciprocal uh, that a black person needs to pursue in the same way. But I I just think that your you know your desire to say, hey, I don't want this to be a one-way conversation. I want to hear you know your perspective on some of these things. Um, it just it 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 engenders trust, and it it deepens understanding, and it puts me in a position where I feel like you know John, John I trust that John can help me to think about these things in a helpful way. So you know, like I read an article recently, and I I I texted you and I said, hey, I'd love to get your take on this article because I want to hear how you're thinking about this. And I want that to, to shape how I'm, I, I, I'm thinking about it. And so I, I think this is, John, this is just a great example of, of the very thing that, uh, that as a white guy, I feel like I need in order to move forward and in order to be helpful and in order to be healthy in the way that, that I uh, have these dialogues. No, thank you for that. So kind of you, Dave, and um, I really appreciate that. How about you, Marty? Uh, I I want to go back and uh, recall a conversation from my middle school years. Um, I was school friends with an African American dude named Willie, and he was a year or two younger than me. Um, very athletic. I was pretty athletic. I didn't play organized sports or anything like that. I played disorganized sports, um, and. When there was a day Willie got in trouble for something. I think maybe it was a fight in the hallway. I cannot remember. What I remember is the teacher came in and got him. And as he was taking Willie away to take him to the office to see the principal, Willie said, like yelled three or four times, just ask Marty. He'll tell you who started it. Just ask Marty. He'll tell you who started it. 
and the, the teacher never asked me. And the truth was, I wasn't sure who started it. So I don't know what I would have said anyway. But way later, I'm talking about way into my adulthood years, I looked back at that conversation and, and there were a lot of people standing around. And I wondered why Willie said, ask Marty. And I couldn't help but think that it was because I was a white guy in the ninth grade, not the seventh grade or the eighth grade who could have vouched for him in a moment of real need that he had. And so I bring that into my adult years and I begin to think of all the people that I could have vouched for, whether they were black pastors or black students or black theologians that I could have affirmed in sermons in conversations uh, that I could have elevated. Uh, I think the word is amplifying. I could have amplified their voice. Um, and I saw no need to do that. Um, so when God, I don't know, half a dozen years ago, 10 years ago, got my attention on the issue of justice and what justice was about and why he loves it and why it was so important. Um, that's why it wasn't conversion that changed me in that regard. It was the conversion of understanding biblical justice is what changed me in that regard. So, um, I would just say, uh, have conversations with, with black folks and Asian folks. Uh, Cross-cultural conversations will open more doors than you can possibly imagine. Doors of understanding, doors of empathy and sympathy and love, and I cannot commend them enough. Well, guys, I just want to thank you um, for this. And uh, I think uh, what we learned is, is uh, good things can happen, right, if there's humble hearts who want to get it right rather than being right. You know, and I think that's all of our goals. We just want to get it right. And we're not here to try and win an argument and be right. And uh, and humility and trying to learn from one another, starting at the dinner table virtually, um, is the, the first place to begin. So, guys, I just want to thank you for coming on here. We'll keep the conversations going. I hope that our listeners were um, informed and educated to some degree in this small discussion that we had. And we'll just keep trying to have the conversations going as the Lord leads. But I think for our listeners, the, the big step to walk away is just a lot of self-reflection and prayer and maybe an exam self-examination be the best place, no matter what your ethnic background is or skin color. So with that, we just want to say thank you for your time, guys. Thank, thank you, John. John.